opening question that sometimes has something to do with the sermon. And so when have you pretended to be someone you're not? When have you pretended to be someone you're not? Sorry. Or someone you, or someone you know has pretended to be someone they're not? I'm sorry. I just, I just want to apologize. This is, this is terribly phrased. Um, but you're used to that. So I remember in college, I had this uh, really close friend, and he had a roommate that pretended to be a motorcyclist who also teaches elementary school. So he would drive to school, drive to UCI in his car, like a four-wheel car, but in his car, he would put on his motorcycle helmet and his like motorcycle like jacket and walk out of the car, and then he would have, proceed to have conversations with people about his motorcycle that he doesn't own, my, my roommate knows this because he lives with him and he does not own a motorcycle. And then he would also talk about him being a teacher, which he is not. Again, my roommate would verify that. But he has like backstories to his students. So he would like talk about Bobby and how he grew up in a difficult home, you know? Like he would create this whole elaborate world of teaching. And the most, the funniest thing to me is that buying a motorcycle is 300 bucks and then you could go get your teaching credential. Like, it's not the craziest, you know? Like, if you're going to lie about something, you should lie about going to the moon or being a surgeon. I don't know. Something, like, more difficult. Like, these are all very accomplishable goals. But anyways, that's who he wanted to become, a motorcycle riding teacher. So I wonder if you, maybe it was your high school life or college where you just wanted to fit in, so you just pretended someone, to be someone you're not. Or you have someone living in delusion that's also entertaining, and you would like to share that story like I did. So either way, I would love for you guys to spend a couple of minutes together, meet someone you don't know, and then we'll come back and look at scripture. All right. Check, check. All right. Thanks so much for sharing, everyone. Hope you got some good stories in. You know, when I think about um, kind of faking it, I, I, I think for me, high school was like the biggest time in my life where I, was, I kept having to pretend to be someone in order to be accepted. And I often went from one group to another. I think my most true self was a baller. And I loved basketball, but I tore my ACLs. After that, I tried to be a gangster, but it's hard to be gangster and Christian. So then I try to be like with the IV students, but I realized I'm not, you know, as you can tell from my, the phrasing my first question, I couldn't hang with them. And so I just continued to pretend to be one, from one person to another. And, and that's really what Jesus says about the Pharisees, right? He's saying that they're hypocrites. Hypocrites are people who pretend to be someone they're not. They're, it's actually taken out of this idea of being in a play and acting putting on a mask, and presenting yourself as someone on the outside, but being someone totally different on the inside. And when you think about the whole kind of Jewish system, religious system, it was all a facade. It was all presentation, the spiritual external face with rotting um, bones on the inside. And, and Jesus says kind of this whole thing is whitewashed tombs, Right? On the outside, you're clean and sparkly. You know, there's no spider webs and the dirt's washed off. But when you walk into the tomb, you sp smell the stench of rotting flesh. You see the maggots. And it's horrific. And that's how he described the state of Israel. And we think about this in the temple. And Pastor Dave laid it out perfectly. The temple was just this big 
con uh, arena where people were duped out of their money. Me and Nina, we went, by the way, we went to Rome and we went to exchange our money. And they have, if you've ever seen a money exchange booth, they have all of the current currency rates. That's not what they're giving you. They're just saying that that's how much hypothetically it would exchange for. So we're like, oh yeah, it does match my phone is their challenge. And then we give them a hundred bucks. We're supposed to get like, let's say 50 bucks in your, back in Euro. But then they take out, which they do not say, like a transition transaction fee of 10%, a handling fee of 15%, like, tip, you know, 10% of tip. So I, 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 I seriously think we got like 30% of our money swindled off of us. Nina was infuriated. She went to one of the Roman guards who couldn't speak the language, and uh, she just looked really upset. Anyways, so that's what the Jewish temple was doing. It was cheating people out of their money. And, and it was such a shell of what the temple was meant to be. Right before, it, there was this holy of holies and God's presence resided there. There was a sense that if I get close enough, I will feel the Lord. That will be in his presence. Have you been in the presence of God before? Where you hear something and you're humbled by it? Where you worship and you get chills? Where you're overcome with his love? You could GPS that if you were a Jew. You would walk towards the temple singing, ascending a hill. And then you would wash your feet, and you knew why, because you were going to stand in the presence of the holy. You brought something to sacrifice, and you knew why, because there was this fear of his righteousness, but a desire to be in his presence. But then we, think, we see in Ezekiel the presence of God leaving the temple. And it was like someone leaving the person they loved. There was a lingering, a grieving. You know, Ezekiel sees the glory of the temple kind of coming up out of it, and then it lingered above it. And it slowly kind of moved away to this neighboring mountain, and then it dissipated. And for hundreds of years, it was just architect. It was just people pretending God was there. It was the Wizard of Oz, and there's nothing really behind a curtain. And, and people knew that, but they, they wished for the past. So they continued in their religious rituals. There, there was 400 years of silence. But prior to that, almost every generation had a voice speaking directly to them from God. Every generation had a prophet explaining what was happening to them, why they were enslaved, why they lost that battle, why things were good. They understood God's word and will through a prophet. Sometimes they hated them. Sometimes they killed them, but they had access to the voice of the Lord. And then for, two, for 400 years, God went silent. Two uh, histories of the U.S., God did not speak. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. But they were, used to, they were used to this empty shell of Israel without the voice of God, without the presence of God, without the people of God. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all building barriers to God instead of letting people come and, and, and meet him. And that exterior shell, that, that um, exterior facade of spirituality, but inside emptiness, is what Jesus calls out again and again in his ministry. And here, if you look at Matthew um, chapter, chapter 21, you see this again. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. 
Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And then Mark 11 verse 13 fills out some details. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So in, Math, in Mark, it says that it wasn't the season for figs, and yet Jesus cursed it. And some, you know, secular scholars will point out kind of his humanness. Him, he's just throwing a tantrum. But actually, during the this, this season of figs was, was only a, a month or two away from the Passover. So when Jesus was walking to the fig tree, he was expecting the buds of figs, which you could snack on. He was accept, expecting evidence that this, fruit was, this tree was going to bear fruit. But it was deceptive. It just had leaves and no fruit. And that's exactly what he's saying about the whole Israel religious system. The, the whole uh, the temple and the priests of the temple and the, the Pharisees. Because right after this incident, he was going to go and clear out the temple. And it's on his way back that the disciples point out the withered tree. And so we have kind of the separation, right? And, and Jesus points this out here between people's exterior religious life, people's external spiritual life, and what's going on in their internal life. And so he's confronting the Pharisees, and he says, what's true? He says, you hypocrites. We talked about that. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their, teacher, their teachings are merely human words, human rules. And so what he's saying is that there's a disconnect. There's a disassociation. There's a distance between what these religious people are saying with their lips from what they're really feeling in their hearts. They worship me on the exterior, but their hearts, their interior is actually far away. And that's what hypocrisy looks like. And I think here we look at what does it mean to have an exterior spiritual life versus an interior one, right? So on our exterior spiritual life, it's what we do. It's our church ministry, our church attendance. It's us on stage. It's our role, our, our positions, our titles, right? I'm your pastor. Some of you are, are small group leaders. Some of you have done really good work in the community and known for that. It's the way that we are perceived by others, that's our exterior spiritual life. Um, maybe it's the verses we put out on Instagram. Or maybe it's the coffee shop, Bible, and coffee, right? And it's, it looks really nice with the little, little plant on the side. It's these flags that we give out to others to say that we're Christian. None of those things are bad. But then that exterior life does not necessarily translate to our internal spiritual life. But that's the danger. The danger is when I think I'm spiritual because I'm a pastor, the danger is when I think I'm close to God because I'm giving a sermon. It doesn't necessarily go more than a few inches deep. And so how do we give greater attention to our internal spiritual life than our external? What really counts before the Lord is our internal. And so even at the beginning of the year, we just asked a simple question. We went, we went for weeks on end talking about the two greatest commandments, love God first and love others love his people. And I wonder when we serve him, 
are those are two first steps into the room, into the space, right? When, when we walked on stage to lead worship or preach, do we walk in saying, God, I want my heart to love you? Where are we? Do I love you? Or am I singing words that my heart don't mean? When I walk into the space, do I love the people in this room? Do you love the people in this room? When you walk into small group, are you praying for the people in your group? When you walk into church, are you praying for the leadership here and, and desiring God to use them? God calls us in our internal life to love him and to love people. And we can do things that look loving but actually be absent of love. And that's, that's the second spot of motivations. It's very hard to see why someone does what they do, right? We can see what someone does, but it's hard to see, are they doing it because they want to be appreciated? Are they doing it because they're wanting that girl to notice them? Are they doing it so that people see their humility and think that they're humble? Or, or is it out of loving God and loving others? And we're all going to have mixed motivations, but we have to think about why we're doing it and start to, as best as we can, filter out the selfish ones. When we don't do that, our whole ministry can be out of selfish motivation and we have only a facade of spirituality. And then our internal life is made up of our integrity, right? Our private life of sin and righteousness when no one is watching. When no one is watching, do we still choose to be righteous, to make the right decision, to have integrity in our life? When no one's watching, do we still fight against sin? When we hang out with our friends who aren't Christians, is it really easy to make crude jokes or to get drunk or to um, objectify the opposite gender? Or do we still hold on to our ethics? Are we still Christian in those environments? And lastly, I think about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Uh, we're even just talking about fruit as we're thinking about the fig tree. And what, what does it mean for the Spirit to have life in us? What is the greatest evidences of life in our soul, that God is residing in us and that he's working in us? Because it's so easy, again, to look at the exterior, right? How is my ministry doing? Or what titles do I have? Do I get to lead worship? Do I get to lead this Bible study? It's so, so easy to look at the external. And God is saying the best way to see if the Lord is alive in you is to look at your character. When we think about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we're not talking about incidental moments. It's, it's not saying, were you patient with your mom today? It's not saying, did you love your girlfriend well? We're actually talking about if these attributes define who you are as you're walking with Jesus. So what if you were to take a step back and examine the last two years of your spiritual life? Have you grown in love? Are you more patient? Do you exhibit deeper self-control? Because if the Spirit's alive in you, those things naturally happen. They're the fruit of it. They're the evidence that there's life in you. But we can, again, just be caught up in the exterior. Your greatest gift to others is a healthy internal life. Because it's who you are, not what you do, that makes the greatest impact. 
I've seen a lot of people through my years of ministry, and I've served with a bunch of people, right? And there's people who do a lot of stuff. They fill a ton of roles for me, which I'm really thankful for, right? Um, they take on leadership positions, worship positions. They set up. Um, they do CM, like all kinds of roles. And then what I've learned, though, through the years is that your role, whatever you're doing for Renew, whatever you're doing for your family, for your company, for your friends, whatever you're doing will diminish in value compared to who you are in that community. I don't care what role you have here. I'd rather you, you're, you being healthy will make a greater impact. Who you are makes a greater impact than what you, what you do. So I've seen people take on all these roles, but because they're unhealthy, their community actually becomes more unhealthy, even though they can point to a list of things they do, right? But at the end of the day, they, have, they carry a spirit of complaint and, dis and discouragement. They, they don't honor their leaders, right? They undercut them. They allow gossip to fester. And those things will always do more damage than the good acts of service you do. Your greatest gift to the community, and there's some people who don't do much for Renew, right? They, I can't point to, like, uh, some people just babysit, right? Uh, I think of someone who only babysits for us. That's a, that's a pretty minor role. But there's this depth to her. Where if you sit in front of her, she's listening, and you can share something, and she'll, she'll pray for you, or she'll just be present. Where who she is builds out these deep relationships and has knitted people together. It's who she is. It, we will all, who we are will always bleed into everything else, our interactions, our platforms, and our ministry. And if you're unhealthy, you'll do a bunch of things, but who you are will bleed all over it. And, it'll, and it will be damaging. And so we need to give great value and attention to our internal life. So as we look at this list, what have we given more attention to? Have we given more attention to what we do and what we're producing and who we get to influence? Or have we given more attention to our internal life? Right? Have we said, God, I want my internal life to undergird my external life. I will worship much more in my bedroom than I ever will on stage. I will pray much more in my closet and much deeper than I ever will for another person. Right? I will love your word by myself at that coffee shop so much longer than I'll ever spend preaching. That's what it looks like to have an have a internal life that is rock solid and have an external life come out of that. But when our external platform and position and authority supersedes our internal life, at some point it's going to collapse. At some point your external life will collapse into where you actually are. And it's, it's going to damage a lot of people, and it's going to damage yourself. Jesus shares a parable about that. I'm just going to paraphrase. He says that everyone who hears my word and does them is like a man who builds his house on rock. Right? There's a firm foundation. And at some point, a storm will come. The winds will beat against it. The rains will come against it. But it will stand. But a foolish man is someone who hears my word and doesn't do it. It's like building his his whole ministry, his whole life on sand, when the storm comes, it breaks down, it collapses, it gives way. Do you have, is your 
um, internal life stronger than what people see about your spirituality? Or are you living with this distance between your title and what's really going on in your soul? That's really what hypocrisy is made out of, right? It's made out of this, this exterior life being elevated and platformed and hyped, but our internal life is actually in shambles. Our wedding, our marriage is not healthy. Uh, we, we don't really like being with our husband or wife. Um, our spiritual life feels dry and empty. You know, one of the, one of the worst parts that comes out of, of that disconnect and, and I would say hypocrisy, one of the things I've seen most that I think is the most damaging, I mean, all of it's damaging, but what I've seen as the most damaging is people who live in, in that for large amounts of time and really have come to embrace it or be comfortable with it because we always, you know, we always will do that sometimes. Anyways, people who've come to embrace it, they themselves live as hypocrites, and then they start to believe that everyone around them are also faking it. I've seen that again and again. It's a pattern where if you live in this long enough, you'll look around and be like, Dave doesn't really love Jesus. He's just, he's just pretending. Wilson, he's messed up, and he's, he doesn't really connect with God. Everyone will become a hypocrite to you. You'll say the whole church is filled with hypocrites because you see yourself with that lens and you've become comfortable and then you see everyone else like that as well. I think one of the wisest things to do is to start to take down your, your external life. If you feel that disconnect, to say, how can I unplatform myself and get some cohesion between my external and internal? And then how do I focus on my eternal, internal life so that that's growing far beyond my service. So I'm not tired all the time. So I'm not grumpy all the time. So I'm not critical all the time, right? So that there's joy and peace and love in my heart. And it's hard to give up the platform because that's what everyone sees. That's what everyone applauds. No one's applauding you when you're in your room praying unless you Instagram it, right? But no one's going to applaud you for that. So we all hold on to the exterior face but God he sees our hearts so I think about a few moments in my life this year where where this was true of me and it will always be true of all of us at some point where and I get the biggest platform of of almost everyone here in terms of spiritual external life right I remember just four or five months ago I had 13 really difficult conversations in the span of a month and they were good. I was thankful for them. People were vulnerable with me, and I was vulnerable. But I described to my other pastors, like, when you extend grace, that means you take the nails. And I felt like in every conversation, and I'm supposed to, I extended grace, but I took, I took the, the nails, right? And it just started waning on me. I didn't have the internal life with the Lord to sustain those conversations. And I ended up just... I just felt this deep anger all the time. And I'm not really an angry person. I'm a seven on the anagram, you know, so I don't, I don't not, I'm like a puppy. Um, I just felt angry. I would wake up angry. I would go to sleep angry. But, you know, if someone at church is making me mad, like, right, if Kristen's making me annoyed, I'm not just going to fool yell at Kristen. She's a church member, right? So who do I get mad at? I get mad at my wife. I get mad at baby. 
you know, for the first time in his life, I, like, full-blown yelled at him, and he just looked, like, so sad and shocked, like, speechless. And I was like, okay. And then my wife felt like, man, you're not safe with him. You're not safe with me. We need to, we need to do stuff about this. So I ended up asking Pastor Dave to preach for eight weeks on, this, on the life of David. And not every pastor gets a Pastor Dave to, to lean on. We're really blessed. And I just, I just stepped down. I took time away from my external spiritual life. We, I went on a silent retreat. I sat with the Lord. Um, and I re- regained Nina and Liam's trust. And she was just such an amazing uh, partner during this time. When she got mad at me, it helped me, you know. Um, and then she would extend grace. I remember last December, I was staring down depression. And I knew, because I had been depressed before, that there were just yellow flags coming up. And the, the most frustrating part was I didn't have things to pinpoint it with, right? Like the last time I went through depression, I broke up with a girl that I dated for four years. I failed Greek, and my lead pastor wanted to fire me. So, you know, I knew why. This time I was like, I'm not sure, but I just feel it. What do I do with this? And December is when every pastor is like pedal to the metal, Let's grow the church. Let's hype, you know, Christmas service. Let's get everyone else to invite friends. And I just felt like, man, I know where I am. And um, I just can't do this with cohesion in my heart, right, with, with integrity between my internal and my external life. And so I asked Pastor Dave to preach through Advent. We're really lucky to have Pastor Dave, by the way. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I took four weeks off because it was, do I wrestle with depression? Do I take this time off and get healthy for January? Or do I push now and go through depression for, for a year or two or five or whatever? Um, I wonder if we're willing to really examine whether our internal life can sustain our external ministry. And I want to give you all permission to step away from your leadership positions, okay? If you're, if you're not serving out of the fruit of the Spirit, out of joy, it's just begrudging and bitter. If you're not serving out of love, you actually are just internally criticizing the people that you're doing ministry with. If you're not serving out of peace, out of gentleness, you're actually really harsh with the church, with the leadership, with your shepherds. Step away. Step away because no matter what you do here, your unhealth will, do, will undo your ministry. Work on your internal life. Give it substance and girth. Let it be something you're confident in that when the storms come and people don't appreciate you and you're tempted and, and, and people undercut you, you're okay because who you are is deeply rooted in Jesus, right? You're that Psalms 1 oak tree. You're that building that built up 10 stories but built down 20. Um, you, you have a depth to you. And your depth is way more than what anyone else sees in your ministry. How do we develop our internal life? Let me just go back to the basics because that's all I have for you. That's all we have. <laughs> Bible intake, okay? Uh, think about... And I'm challenging myself right now. 
Think about your intake on uh, Netflix. I can go through a whole, I think I watched two seasons of Stranger Things on my, on my Sabbath day, right? I just went through it. And I would skip the intro. I would skip all the scary parts. Any upside down world scene, skip, you know. Any flashing lights, skip. I would do like, I would just pan photos of it. Because you know how you scroll through on Hulu or Netflix. You can just see like little screenshots. I would do that. That's how I watch it. But I loved, I loved like the, baby, the dialogue between kids and all that. Um, but man, that was like 10 hours or whatever. How, how, what's your Netflix intake? What's your, what's your Instagram intake? And then what's your Bible intake, right? This, this, that's supposed to be a mirror to your soul and guide your life and most importantly, show you who God is. We're at Alpha, and one of the questions was, if you could ask a God any question, what would you ask? And then one of the guys was like, I would ask for a book, a book that would show me how to live my life and what truth was. And I was like, the Bible? And I broke like four alpha rules, but Josh is my friend, so I'm okay embarrassing him. And, um, and that's what the Bible is, right? It's God speaking to us and giving us his truth and allowing us to root our lives into it. But, but have, we, have we just followed the narratives of Netflix instead of follow the narrative of Christ? What is our prayer life like? How do we go wider in our prayer life so that we're integrating conversations with God in every category, in every part of our day, our work life, that we bring him into our workspace, bring him into our families, into our friendships, and he's a part of our day. And then how do we go deeper in our prayer life? Are you, are you, you, know, you know that friend that only wants to talk about the weather and sports, and you're like, I've known you for 10 years, and our friendship is like this thick, right? We talk about how it's sunny again, and the Golden State Warriors, right? That's it. And I wonder if that's our conversation with God. I wonder if we've gone 10 years in our spiritual life, and we've said, God, can I have these things? I'm sorry for this. Have a nice day. The book of Psalms gives us so much depth in our prayer. It's a whole book about prayer. And you learn how to pray in depression. You learn how to pray in anxiety. You learn how to pray in fear and in celebration and joy and purpose. And then you learn about God. You learn of him as a creator and you, and you marvel at creation through your prayer. It gives you templates of prayer. You know, I can't do, I can't do graphics and there's all these, all these templates, right? And then you just plug and play. Well, it gives you a starting point to pray in many seasons and many facets of God and in every part of your journey. Explore the Psalms and learn how to pray and have, have conversations with God, process with him, grieve with him, rejoice with him. And then in Hebrews, it talks about not being weary of gathering together regularly, that this is a part of your spiritual diet. This is a part of growing your internal life, that you have other eyes around you hopefully to speak truth into you, to call you out in sin, to encourage you. God's given you gifts and your gender and your ethnicity. Why? To give it to another person, right? All the spiritual gifts that God's given you is never, it can never be experienced by yourself without a community. How do you teach or exhort or be hospitable or encourage without a community around you? Most, most of the New Testament epistles are, is all about church life, right? And so how, how can you obey, obey the Bible without being in fellowship? And lastly, 
to live and surrender to his will. To walk in every day saying, God, you have a will for me. You have good work for me to do. Did you know that? That God has planned good work for each one of you to do in this life? Some of them are giant. Some of them are just kind of those mini conversations. But, but someone is, is rocked because you had a three-minute conversation about not joining a cult. And they are rocked by it. Right? God has some really amazing things for you to do. But we have to live in surrender in order to do it. We have to be in intimacy with him. You know, if he gives you amazing things to do and you're not, you don't have a strong internal life, he's cursing you. Because one day the storm will come and the amazing things you've accomplished will collapse inward. By God's grace, he only gives us what our internal life can sustain. And if you try to elevate yourself beyond it, again, the collapse will come. But when I think about the great things he has for us, I think about this passage. The disciples saw this, the withered um, fig tree. They were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. Whoa, that's have you thrown any mountains? I'm going to do that. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Okay, this is a really easy, this verse is really easy to misunderstand, right? And if you uh, have any exposure to like TBN, you've heard it quoted like every, every segment. Um, I remember reading this in high school and saying, if I pray and do not doubt, God will let me like throw mountains, right? And so I couldn't see a mountain where I lived. So I was like, I'm just going to try walking on water. It's a little less than throwing a mountain. Although I've tried to throw mountains as well. Anyways, I go to the backyard. And there's a pool in front of me, uh, my pool. And, but I, I was like, if I change into shorts, I'm not, I have no faith. So I'm going to change into my school clothes. I had to go to school anyways. And then I'm going to freaking walk on water, right? So I walk up to the ledge, but it's the shallow end. I'm like, that's not faith. Come on, shallow end. So I walk over to the deep end. And I look into the water. I'm like, okay, I'm expelling every doubt from my head. And I'm going to walk on water. And I step into the pool. And then I step out of the pool. And then I change my clothes. <laughs> it's not like totally dressed. I remember my mom being very confused. I'm sure she doesn't remember this. But she was just looking at me like, you know, must be puberty. I don't, I, there's like no explanation. <clears throat> Is that what it means? Does it mean we just get to, like, just ask mountains to be thrown? No. We, when we have faith, what is this faith in? Ken, Ken Gay talked about this uh, a while ago when, when a verse like this very similar came up. Whatever you ask for, you will receive. But what, what is, where does the faith rely, uh, reside? Is it in what I'm asking for? Is my faith that what I'm asking for, God will accomplish? Is my faith in the request? No, is it in me? Is it that like I didn't try hard enough? You know, like Moses, like when he was parting the Red Sea, was he like summoning all his chi and then, you know, with the staff, with the wizard staff and then the sea parted? Was it like the faith that he held? No, the faith is in God. The faith is saying, God, I trust you in this circumstance to do your will. 
And if your will is to part the sea, you will part the sea. If your will is to move a mountain, you'll move a mountain. If your will is to stop the sun, you will stop the sun. You can do whatever you want. And my job is to surrender and be in fellowship with you and to watch you work. I think Moses was like, like this. And then, you know, the waist parted. <laughs> God does amazing things when we live in surrender. You know, there's a few examples I'll give out of my life. I remember um, be, to get this church off the ground, you know, I was quitting my old job, and we had still have rent to pay. We have to rent a facility. We have to buy sound systems. I have to pay Katie, who was on staff. And, and we weren't going to do that with 15 people. So you, as a church plant, have to raise money for a whole year before you expect to even be close to breaking even, right, as a, from a financial perspective. And so I remember seeing in front of the phone having to fundraise. I, I feel like all of you who have to do MPD are like, you know, there's some anxiety building. I'm sitting in the phone, I'm sitting in front of my phone, picking it up, and I called my sure shot in terms of who would give me money. My best, oh, we have to erase this off the podcast at some point. So my best friend's dad, I grew up with him, right? He saw me as a child. His, his son would sleep over. I would sleep over at, in his house. He's a millionaire, you know? He's a millionaire. And, um, and we, I ate at his home. I mean, we just have the deepest history. I called him uncle. And so he knows. He knows I'm going to plant a church. He's seen me struggle through it. Uh, he, I've talked about it forever. So I pick up the phone. I'm like, will you give me money? Yeah, I didn't say it like that, but, you know. But I, I actually, st- I remember staring at the phone for like two hours, just, just being scared and like being afraid of rejection and, and just like, it was so draining. And I finally picked it up and I had the conversation. I went through my whole proposal and then I asked him uh, to support us and he said no. And I was like, I, I don't know how many times I could do this. I need to raise $100,000 and the number one person that I was relying on to give me money didn't do it. Um, and um, I, just, I just remember feeling so crushed. And, and then I think, though, it's in the times where we feel like we can't do it that we surrender, right? Like, it's the dreams that we can't accomplish on our own that we pray for mountains to be moved. So for me, it was raising $100,000. And... To make a long story short, God did that in three months. In three months, as, a, as an individual for our church, we raised $100,000 to get this thing off the ground. Another money example, um, we wrote a book, uh, me and like a couple of team members at Renew, uh, called To Be Healers with Jesus. And, and our Kickstarter went well, and I asked the team before we pressed launch, I was really nervous, like, what if no one buys this book? What if it's like my mom and your mom, but your mom doesn't buy it? What if we sell two books, right? And so I was asking, like, how many books do we need to sell for you guys to keep doing this with me? And they just had such a surrendered spirit. They're like, you know, we're proud of the work we did, and we'll still write books, even if, even if we make like 100 bucks off of this, because we believe in the message. I was like, you're, you're an amazing team. And we ended up reaching our goal of 5,000. We sold 300 books. But my mountain is, how do we, you know, we asked all the team members, too, as we were celebrating us launching, like, what's your dream for this book? And people talked about, oh, I want kids to, like, you know, learn about medicine and how God uh, can use them in it. I was like, I want every child in America to have a book in their hand, right? That's, a, that's kind of a mountain-moving prayer. 
And I, I know that's not possible. My reach at best is a few thousand. We might be able to sell a few thousand books. And I said, man, the only way we're going to be able to move this book further is if we have a, a really amazing amount of funding to be able to large print, bulk print it, bring down the price from $20, which is like an enormous amount to pay for a children's book, down to like 11 12 uh, If we had money for marketing and so on and so forth. So anyways, I'm just praying this. I sent a book to one of the people who gave us money at Renew. And lo and behold, she loves children's books. She collects them. And she loves giving them money away. And she loves me. And so she loves Renew. She loves all the ministry we've done. So I'm on the phone with her. I haven't gotten a check yet. But she asked me, how much money will it take to bulk print so that you can lower your price? How much money does it take to, for customer acquisition to move all those books? And how much money would it take for your team to stay together? Priscilla, Elaine, Mitchell, Zach, right? She wants to be able to encourage us with, with a lump sum so that we commit to the rest of the book. And so I'm like, man, that's a hard question to answer. The first two I can just get numbers for. So I did sit down with my team. I was like, what do you think we should ask for as a team, you know, to continue doing this book? I'm like, maybe 500 per person? That would be nice. We could buy a Disneyland pass and, you know, buy a couple meals um, at Disneyland, maybe two meals at Disneyland. And um, Priscilla's like, I don't know, $100 would be nice, you know? And I have Zach, who's like the cornerstone of our, of our thing. We can't, we can't produce books without illustration. And he's like, my priority is to get the book out, and whatever's left, we could divide like five ways. And I think our whole team just exemplifies this attitude of surrender, that this really isn't about us. This really isn't about us making money. And I put that in them when, we, when I asked them to join. Like, you'll probably make no money. But... Um, but we just can, we can gift this book to the Lord. We became a nonprofit so we could gift the proceeds um, to foster, you know. And, and I wonder when you think about the work that God has for you, I just believe that when you're walking and dreaming with him, when you're praying the dreams that he already has for you, I wonder what mountains he'll move for you. I wonder what things he'll remove out of your way so that you'll do more than you can ever imagine, way beyond the reach of your arm that he'll, he'll accomplish in your life. And so we're not asking to walk on water, but we're, also st- but we're still asking for mountains to move and to walk on water in a metaphorical way, like $20,000. Yeah? Um, the last thing I think about is Peter. I think about how Jesus and uh, Pastor Patrick Fisher preached this so well. You know, Peter got all this fish. That's what he was asking for, and that's what he got. And I wonder if we're holding on to being a fisherman. You know, I think sometimes we neglect the dreams of God. We neglect the mountains because we're holding on to these smaller dreams. And we're holding on to dreams we can do and things we can accomplish. And Peter, he got this boatload of fish, right? It was everything he ever wanted. And then Jesus says, but I have a greater adventure for you. I have mountains to move. I want you to see people's limbs grow out. I want you to see me resurrect from the dead. I think sometimes we hold on to our fish. And we hold on to all these idols in our life. All of of our really short dreams that our arms can reach. And we stop saying, God, what will you do with me as I live in surrender? As I let go of my dreams, let go of my boats, and my fish, let go of my, my titles, 
and the platform I want to have and just say, God, you, it's about you and me. It's about us being close. It's about my internal life with you and following you into whatever adventure you have for me. God, we thank you so much for this time. And I just look at every person here and believe that you have amazing plans for them. You, you know, having a baby, I'm, I just have amazing plans for him. It's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. We are your kids. You have amazing plans for each of us, and I pray that we would have the internal life to sustain those dreams. That sometimes you're withholding dreams from us. You're withholding the mountains being moved because our internal life just can't sustain it. So help us, Lord, to focus on on being connected to the vine and not on the fruit. You know, when you prune us, help us not to freak out because we weren't staring at the grapes. Our eyes were on the vine. Our eyes were on being connected to you. That's all that matters, whether we're, it's a season of, of plenty or a season of pruning. Our, our eyes aren't fixed on that. That as long as we're abiding in you, as long as we're abiding in your love, we can expect fruit at some point. We can expect you to use us in the big and small ways, parenting our child with patience, speaking life into someone over coffee, asking Greg many years ago to go to a worship night. What, a, what an amazing moment. What a mountain moved. And I know that you have that for each one of us. In Jesus' name. Will you just spend a few minutes reflecting? If you were to draw a graph of your external spiritual life, the way people see you, your titles, your role at this church, and your internal life, is your internal life greater than your external? Is the fruit you really want the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Will we just talk to God about that?